passage, Malachi chapter 3 and 4, and let's ask God for his help now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And above all, what we are not, you would make us. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, yes or no, um, tea or coffee, apple or Android, cats or dogs. Uh, you and I live in a world that is full of choices. Uh, some of them are very easy. It has to be dogs. No contest. Um, others are uh, hard. Others are um, controversial. And it's the latter that I want to think about as we begin. Our culture hates binary choices. Um, two of the big um, buzzwords of our day are um, diversity and inclusivity. Um, and before we get uh, too critical, I think we need to um, say that there is much that is really good about that emphasis. Um, you cannot look at um, creation without concluding that God loves diversity. You can't look at the church, even around us tonight, and uh, not think that God values um, that kind of thing as well. You can't read the last chapter of the Bible and question it. People from every tribe and tongue and nation will be there. And not only that, yes or no answers, um, binary choices can often be too simplistic, can't they? We should be a bit wary of them. Um, there's lots of things in life that are complex, problems, issues, circumstances that don't have easy solutions. And yet the challenge is that often the inclusivity um, we see celebrated in our society feels quite exclusive. And the diversity that is being called for, well, it often feels quite monochrome. And living in this kind of culture, this kind of atmosphere, well, that can make us feel quite uneasy as Christians. Maybe at the school gate, maybe in the lecture theater, maybe at the family gathering, in the office, we can easily start to feel like well, black and white people in a technicolor world. And we don't like to be different. And we want to fit in. And so the temptation is to play down, even in our minds, let alone with our words, any idea of distinction, of division, of judgment. And our passage tonight in Malachi is here to help us when we feel that way. And yet there's one caveat as we begin. And just as we saw last time in Malachi, his audience is the church. His audience is the church. And so we need to listen to his message with humility. We need to think first and foremost about how this applies to us before we jump to think about what it might say to the world. In this passage, God is promising that a day of division is coming. And we see it in verse 18. And yet it really is on every line of the passage. One day a distinction will be made between what are referred to as the righteous 
and the wicked. And so it feels perhaps appropriate to have two points tonight as we look at this passage. And the first point is this, two attitudes, two attitudes. Uh, To be in the wrong uh, but think you're not, that is a dangerous place to be, isn't it? And it is just what we see as verse 13 begins. God's people once again are just incredulous as he confronts them. And it appears that the things they've said to God and about God have put a strain on the relationship. Words can do that. They can damage families, relationships, friendships. That's why we're called to guard our tongues throughout God's Word. And the specifics are spelled out in verse 14. And it all really comes down to this. God's people believe there is just little point in serving him. There is little profit, which is a very revealing word, isn't it? In keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. Here are people who are dissatisfied with life with God. Keeping his charge refers to God's words. Walking in mourning refers to God's ways, a kind of pattern of life that flows from it, a life of repentance. And God's people say, we are just, well, we are tired of all that. It really is a bit of a waste of time to serve you, following your commands, living as you call us to is a bit pointless. And by the way, God, while we're at it, you should know that we all know that the justice you seem to promise, well, it's not coming. In your world, the arrogant are blessed, verse 15. Evildoers are are prospering. People put you to the test, God, and you do nothing. So grumbling, moaning, and then some real um, self-righteousness thrown in, it does not make for a very pretty picture, does it? And there's a real ugliness about all of this. Maybe tonight it should make us pause, reflect, if we're ever prone to such an attitude. Are we tired of serving God? We may be tired tonight. We may have sat outside all afternoon. Are we tired of serving God? Do we think of it all as in vain? This is not the first time that um, God's people had talked to him like this. He'd heard it all before. This was just how God's people had spoken to him as they'd wandered Um, in the wilderness, isn't it? Grumble, 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 grumble. It gets quite annoying. And yet, there are some people who are different. There are some people in this passage who don't behave that way. Can you see them? We meet them in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord, that's a really um, key phrase. It comes again later in the reading. Um, See if you can find that uh, phrase. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And the contrast is really stark, isn't it? Here are people who fear the Lord rather than presuming to know better than him. Here are people who 
um, are reflecting on their behavior before um, they mouth off at him. And I just love God's response to them. The Lord paid attention and heard them, verse 16. Now, those are two things that are really vital in any relationship, aren't they? Paying attention, noticing details, and listening. And God says he treats these people like that. And he does even more. They don't just have God's eye. They don't just have God's ear. They know his name, the covenant Lord. And he knows their name. He knows their name. A book of remembrance is written before him of those who fear the Lord. Now, the idea of God knowing the names of his people is seen all through the Bible. Um, Think of uh, the genealogies in the Old Testament. If you're reading through uh, the Bible in a year, how how we often stumble through these Old Testament genealogies. But each one of them um, uh, is a, a precious Old Testament believer. Think of God writing the names of his people in um, Psalm 87 or the Lamb's Book of Life in Revelation. When I worked as a teacher, um, names were very important in the classroom. If you didn't know the names of pupils, they knew it. If you did, it could be very effective. Harry, get back to work, that kind of thing. And God will never forget your name. God will never forget your name. As Christians, we have been baptized into his name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this intimacy is intensified in verse 17. Look at how God describes his people. They shall be mine. They shall be mine. Four little words. And yet four little words that change our lives. See, as we live in a culture that is constantly telling us we only belong to ourselves, God says, no, you you belong to me. You belong to me. Um, Woody and Buzz Lightyear live in our house. Um, We don't just have Marianne's mum in our house now. We've got them as well. Um, Kids, maybe you can remember what Woody has written um, on the sole of his shoe. I wonder if anyone can remember. What has Woody got um, on the sole of his shoe? Anyone want to shout out? Hamish, do you know? Anyone know? It is Andy. Andy, remember? Okay, Andy. And it's just like um, you and me. Um, But Jesus has not uh, written his name on us with um, a permanent pen. Jesus has written his name on us with his own blood. He's called us Christian. He's um, named us. And we're not our own, but we belong to him, body and soul. We belong to a faithful savior. The one who created us has put a, a stamp of ownership on us. And this means that just like God's people here, you and I, we are his treasured possession. 
uh, the commentator uh, Joyce Baldwin, she says that this phrase, it was used by God to describe his people back at Sinai. And so it's almost as if God is going back in time. He's, he's kind of erasing the wilderness wanderings. He's rewriting wrongs. He's reminding them of this name that he called them, their, his treasured possession. Um, I wonder if you've got any um, treasured possessions, and uh, maybe some uh, crockery or something like that that's hidden away. Maybe it, this idea is uh, slightly um, negative, treasure possession, the kind of old item that we um, don't ever take out. Well, in case we think of it that way, look at what God says as well in verse 7. He says that he treats us with fatherly care, fatherly care. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Friends, I wonder tonight if you know that that is the way God sees you. And maybe tonight you need a reminder of, of, to let that truth and begin to do its work inside your heart. If you're a Christian, you are in God's Son. You are in Christ. And you are righteous. That doesn't mean you're good. It's not something that we earn. God didn't save us because of potential in us. No, it's a gift. It's God's declaration. You are mine because of what Jesus has done. Dwell on that. Think about that. It will change your attitude to him. So two attitudes But the second thing we see here in this passage is two futures, two futures. And I think we need to um, acknowledge something as we think about this. Um, Isn't it the fact that even within the church, um, let alone the world, many people consider the idea of God's judgment, they think of it as something barbaric. Um, They think of it as offensive, maybe um, outdated, Maybe tonight you're someone or you know someone who has that view. And maybe you don't like to think of the thought of a God who would judge. Or maybe you're tempted by that view. How could we, how could we help a person who thinks that way? One of the things we could do is we could challenge the, the false dichotomy between love and anger we could explain that these two realities can coexist. Think of the parent who hates uh, the impact of addiction on a child, who hates it, who does everything to help them. Apathy, indifference is not loving in that situation, isn't it? Secondly, we could talk about the fact that Jesus speaks about hell and judgment. There is no new God in the New Testament. But I think um, a third avenue we could go down would be to connect wrath with worship. We could ask questions like this, what kind of God would be apathetic towards human evil? If we rightly value people who fight against those things, How should we think of a God who seemed 
ambivalent to them. Would such a God really be worthy of worship? See, I think the idea of a God without judgment, it sounds very loving, doesn't it? Sounds plausible. But once you start uh, taking the layers off, once you start taking that idea to its logical conclusion, then things become more complicated, don't they? And not only that, if there is no final judgment, if there is no final assessment of history, then really nothing we do right now matters. I think lots of people um, who don't believe in God's judgment, they just kind of shut out these ideas and they can't cope with the, the thought of there being no final assessment and so they just pretend it isn't true. But we need God to judge. And because God has set a day, we can have hope that one day the justice that we often cry out for will finally come. And there are certain um, days in history that are etched in um, historical memory. I mentioned um, um, FDR, the President of the United States, a few weeks ago. Um, Pearl Harbor, he called that day, December the 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. Um, 9-11 is another day like that, isn't it? And God has a day too. God has a day too. This is the big theme of verses 1 to 3. It's mentioned three times. God wants his people to know that a day is coming. On that day, a distinction will be made. There will be a parting of the ways. And how people experience that day will be different. To some, it will be a day of of terror. And yet to others, it will be the greatest moment of their lives. Two completely different feelings about that day. And God uses four images in verses 1 to 3 to get this point across. He talks about the fire, the sun, the calves, and the ash. The fire, the sun, the calves, and the ash. And with each one, he's, he's building up a picture of just how terrible and how wonderful this day will be. Now, the fire and the ash, they're mentioned at the beginning and the end of these verses. And as one writer points out, the, the imagery of roots being, being burned up, it shows just how, how drastic God's judgment will be. Roots are hard to reach, aren't they? And yet on that day, God's judgment will reach them. It will go beyond a natural fire, in other words. It will be a a deep, it will be a final work. Those who once pressed down the righteous, well, they will find that the tables have turned. And yet to some, it will be like the dawn. The dawn, the image of the sun is is beautiful, isn't it? When God comes for his people, that moment, it will be like a sunrise. It will mean healing. It will mean a new beginning. And it will mean peace. 
Uh, we have uh, a wider um, family WhatsApp group. And on the 25th of every month, I take up uh, the annoying mantle of being the person who says it is only X months to Christmas. I did it on Friday, nine months. Can you believe it? Can you hear echoes of a carol um, in Malachi? Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Down the centuries, theologians, they have seen here a picture of Jesus. And in Luke's gospel, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he prophesies that because of the tender mercies of God, his son will prepare the way for Jesus, the one who will come like the sunrise. He will shine, he says, on those living in darkness. And in the shadow of death, and he will guide our feet into the path of peace. What you and I know is that that event, that came in two movements, didn't it? It came the first time as Jesus came into our suffering, into our sin. And all through his life, he lived in the shadow of the cross. But when he comes again, all the shadows will flee away. When Jesus comes again, he will spread his healing rays of righteousness across the world. He will bring a whole new day. He will be the lamp, the light in the heavenly Jerusalem that will never go out. There will be no more night in that great city, all because of him. And then there are the calves the calves. Um, I know we've got some farming experts. I don't think um, they're here this evening, but isn't this wonderful? Can you picture them? There's such a sense of excitement and joy, and maybe we can even say fun here. Can you see that? In verse 2, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Friends, if you're a Christian, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, then this is what that day will feel like for you. I think as God's people, we are often, in one sense, understandably, afraid, terrified of the Lord's return. And yet, it will also be a day of great joy, won't it? Maybe tonight you need to ask God to help you anticipate that day. Ask him to let the thought of it fill you with joy and hope. Because here is a promise in these verses of joy that will never be taken away. It will never, ever end. Remember that day. That day is coming when you have a mind full of questions and doubts, when you're struggling with sin, when you feel like you failed again. And look forward to that day when you're tempted to give up, when you're tempted to despair. Talk about it, sing about it, wait for it with eager expectation. Wait for the sun to come. And if you're here tonight or you're watching this and you know that you're not a Christian, remember what God says. A day is coming. A day like no other. The time to get ready for that day is 
today, tonight. And the person to run to is Jesus. And the thing to say to him is this, Lord Jesus, keep me safe on that day. Keep me safe on that day. Well, we read in verses um, four to six at the start of this series, uh, and again tonight, let's glance at them um, again as we close. As God uh, mentioned the law of Moses and the ministry of Elijah, I think you and I are called to remember another time these, these two figures are mentioned in the same passage, and that is um, the Mount of Transfiguration. If you're familiar with the Bible, um, then you will know that big events often happen on mountains, Sinai, um, Carmel, Zion. And the transfiguration, it was no different. Maybe you can remember what happened as Jesus was praying. Uh, The appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. And then who did Peter, James, and John see? They saw Moses, they saw Elijah, who are mentioned here at the end of Malachi. Uh, they, They were discussing with Jesus his departure. What did Peter say? Let's build a shelter. But what did God say? This is my son who I have chosen. Listen to him. And then Jesus was alone. And J.C. Ryle, a great uh, old uh, Bible commentator, he said that that event, the transfiguration, it lifts a corner. It lifts a corner of the veil which hangs over the world to come. It's a beautiful expression. He's saying it's as if the world to come is covered by a giant veil. And just for that moment, as the disciples looked at Jesus in all his glory, it was as if the curtain was lifted. He was the one standing behind it. He was the one who would rule over the the new creation. And this is what Malachi is pointing us to as well tonight. See, this is the last book of the Bible, uh, of the Old Testament, isn't it? And yet it's only the beginning. Um, A decisive moment um, in World War II was the Battle of El Alamein. As the Allies, they started to, uh, they were starting to turn the tide. And um, Winston Churchill, he famously said, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And this um, final book of the Old Testament is a little bit like that. Because we turn the page. Maybe you can do that in your Bibles. Turn that page. And what do we see next? The genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we start to realize that God has set in motion a chain of events that cannot be stopped. A chain of events that will culminate in his death, his resurrection, and yes, one day, his return. And so we say tonight, come, Lord Jesus Christ, come. Come and reign in our lives. Come and reign until that day. Amen.
Well, let's have a moment's quiet and then we'll pray. Paul writes, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Father, we thank you for this great hope that you've given us in your word. We thank you for the sure and the certain promise that Jesus will return. And we pray that this fact, it would shape the things that we love and the ways in which we live this week. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake, for his glory. Amen. Amen. We're going to um, close our service this evening by singing about that great future that we have as God's people. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, and then this uh, lovely sentence, we will feast and weep no more. Let's stand and encourage each other and praise God by singing these words.
Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word.